Hello and welcome to the Everyday Problems podcast, a podcast about the problems we face each day as we go about our busy lives. I'm Tom Cornell, and my co-host Liam Tarvit and I have had many dealings with depression and anxiety and other related issues and wanted to provide a safe space where we can normalise the conversation around mental health and its impact on everything from the workplace to grief to just getting through the day. I should point out that we're not medical professionals and we don't profess to have all the answers. But we are veterans of the embattled mind and we hope that by sharing our war stories we might shed some light on solutions that could be useful to you or people that you know. In episode 9 of Everyday Problems, Liam takes a break and I talk to one of my closest friends, Blair Chadwick, about his struggles with a severe bipolar disorder. I met Blair at university when I was 19. Blair is a year older than me and a year into our relationship as young rock and rolling best mates, he had his first bipolar episode. It manifested itself as a frightening exaggeration of his normal character and you'll hear more about that as we chat. Blair recovered but has experienced two relapses since then, triggered by external real-life challenges. As Blair and I chat, you'll notice that it's not easy for us. It becomes apparent during our conversation that perhaps due to the amount of medication needed, there are conversations we've had since Blair's last episode which have been forgotten and which make for some slightly uncomfortable listening. But that discomfort is exactly why Blair and I both thought this was such an important conversation for people to hear. Blair's last clash with his bipolar disorder, which was a full psychotic break in February this year, was a frightening time. And as a close friend, I actually travelled to be with Blair as he got through it and while medical professionals found the best course of treatment. But while Blair has suffered some extreme altered states over the years, he's a successful 38-year-old with a wonderful wife, Polly, and a beautiful daughter, Chamomile. She also happens to be my goddaughter. He's a fantastic musician who's done lots of work for charities and he now hosts a brilliant podcast called Music to Survive By, which is a bit like Desert Island Discs but with a clever twist that links the conversations to mental health topics. Check it out when you can. The conversation today is deeply personal, often challenging, but as ever we thought it would shine an important light on something that happens in real life and affects a huge amount of people. We did have some sound quality issues and as two podcast hosts in our own right, there are a couple of moments where we refer to each other in the third person for the benefit of the audience. I just thought I'd mention that in case it causes any confusion. Apologies and explanations out of the way, let's get on with episode 9. So I met you, Blair Chadwick, uh, at Bass Bar University in 2002 and... Uh, yeah, I know, crazy, isn't it? Scary, scary long time ago. And we bonded over guitars and cheap booze and um, music, lots and lots and lots of music. We were both doing the commercial music course at Bass Bar Uni. Um, and we had a couple of amazing years rocking out and being students and and being human and being fairly carefree and making mistakes and having good times and doing all the things that that humans do and then at some point towards the end of our uni time you became a little unwell and ended up going home for a little while and it was difficult to fully understand exactly what had happened but you had been acting out of sorts and we'll, we'll perhaps we'll come on to some of those behaviors in a minute I'd, I'd like to ask you how, how you feel about um how 
how you came across in, in that time. Um, but you ended up going home for a period of recovery. You got well again. You came back um, and were absolutely fine again. And over, I'm oversimplifying at this point, but over the years that followed, you've had, it's resurfaced a couple of times, the, the challenges that you were having at that time. And you've had to go through recovery periods. And one of those is very recent, was this year and was was quite severe. And, and obviously these things are never expected and, and was a bit of a stark reminder because it had been some time since you had um, ha- had any experience of that. So is, is all of that fair to say so far? Is that a, a very oversimple summary? No, I agree with all that. Apart from the British understatement of a little unwell, I think I was, I was full-blown <laughs> full Brian Wilson unwell, to quote Ben Hill. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm bipolar. I had my first manic episode when I was 21, as Tom says. Um, yeah, at university, that was when it was was new to me, and it was finishing the first year. It was only the first year, so it was only one year that we had at uni before I had my mad episode. Wow, really? It's crazy, it's, it? Yeah, because yeah, I came back, then dropped back a year, and then you finished. Of you course, did. yeah, yeah. Had a great first year at university. Lots of highs, lots of lows. As Tom was saying, you know, lots of drinking and being young and silly, and it was brilliant. Smoking loads of fags out of your window, and you know. It was a um, great time, but I did, did get very unwell and I was diagnosed with bipolar at 21, had a major episode. And then for me to oversimplify it, I was back with my parents on a Scottish island um, for six months and I came back for your birthday party. Neil came up to me and said, oh, I heard you've been on a Scottish island. It must have been mental to have been up there. <laughs> so that was a nice breaking of the ice from... Uh, <laughs> absolute burke on the course yeah one of our friends from university yeah uh, acquaintances anyway um and blair if you don't mind me asking then could you talk a little bit about during the time when you started to become ill could you tell us a bit about what what behaviors you were exhibiting at that time what caused us to see that something wasn't right and ultimately was the cause of you going home to recover yeah i mean so just to just to finish my oversimplification of, of my mental illness life, that's all right, just to get this context. Mm. So 21 was that first big breakdown at uni, left and came back. And then I was, in inverted commas, okay again until 25 when I had another breakdown and I had to recover. And then I've been okay until this February when my dad passed away and I had my third episode. So there was 13 years break between episodes. I've only had three episodes. Anyway, that's my bipolar history out of the way. Um, so your question, Tom, was what was it on my first episode? What was going on? So we were living quite high, I think. Like we were, we were drinking, we were dreaming, and we were living a rock and roll life. And I think I was really had that great year at university, and I was nervous about going to the second year. And I think I was just trying to cover up some sort of things. Like I remember I went to Glastonbury with Ben Hill. That was just before I got ill, because that's when I had my 21st birthday out there in Glastonbury. And I remember just thinking, I should be really happy here. I'm in Glastonbury. Everyone's happy in Glastonbury. And I was so just not. I was really in a really bad place. Mm. And you try and sort of dig yourself out of the hole by drinking more. And and it's, it's so it's such a massive oversimplification to say, like, you know, it's the drink and the drugs that did it. I don't think it is that. I think it's like a moth to the flame. You crave these things that are bad for you when you're in that bad state. 
But what I was doing, I was becoming erratic and I didn't understand. So it was like being possessed. And what I remember from looking back on that period was, was scaring people and it all becoming like a film. And I remember where we were staying in Alpine Gardens in Bath, looking looking down onto Bath and suddenly feel like I'd woken up. And I was looking down and thinking, look, it's all so beautiful. I want to go down there and have these interactions and meet Nicolas Cage who lives in Bath and all these grandiose thoughts. And, it's only it's sort of like you flipped into like a different universe you know like watching stranger things at the moment it feels like the upside down world a different universe it suddenly flips in but obviously the first time that happened it's terrifying and then the next two times it's happened it's also been equally terrifying but they've always been their own little films so you can't think oh i'm in that again because you have like a you you sever your break from reality but yeah i mean the first time uh was just um yeah pretty pretty wild and frightening people and so embarrassing and feeling out of place and then when I got stuck on that Scottish island feeling like oh god I'm 21 and I'm fat and depressed stuck on this island where I should be seeing Ryan Adams I remember when you called me once and you and Cara going to see Ryan Adams god I'm so far away from where I should be uh but I got you know I got myself back there didn't I absolutely you, you did and, and if I could just um, to go, go back into some of that less comfortable territory for just a moment, just to talk a little about what it was like from the, from the outside looking in at, at your situation. So we had always had a very loud friendship, lots and lots and lots of laughter, daring each other to do daft things. I don't think any any more than a couple of young mates prob- probably did, maybe a little bit on occasion. There were certainly times when, when we were a little um, a little wild. But I think, like like you say, I think that there is a danger that you can, when you're a particularly sensitive character, as I think we both are, and I think it's very common in, in music and in the arts as well, there is a, a tendency to, to not know where the line is and to, to fall somehow into um, these slightly altered states, if I might refer to it as that. And I know that when, when you started to behave slightly erratically, it was actually really difficult the first time I didn't realise at first that you were not well because we'd always had this sort of very, very loud, slightly eccentric at times, listening to loud music, um, shouting at each other, just being daft. That was kind of the nature of our friendship. And I know it's it's not something it's not like a switch gets flicked or flicked or certainly it wasn't that first time. It was it was quite a gradual movement into what we later would discover was an episode if if that's how i might put it of of your bipolar condition and that i think is that's really stayed with me that that there isn't a it's it's not black and white and that actually because of human beings characters we're all, we're all very different there's a big blur between what is considered normal and actually what is a troubling um state of mind and i know that that first time it was it was difficult trying to fathom out whether you were being normal but just a little louder uh than usual or if something was really wrong and then obviously it did reach a point where you were keen to make yourself known in public places you spent a lot of if anyone's trying to guess what i'm what i'm alluding to there was no flashing or anything like that but but you were certainly very loud in in um public places and things 
And well, you, and you you uh, you became very rude, which at first was funny, and then obviously realised that there might be a bit more to it than that. You you were spending quite a lot of money, and I remember that was a bit of a trigger. That was a bit like, I think Blair would normally know that he doesn't have that money, but there seems to be a lot going on credit cards and things at the moment, and that was a bit of a uh, a trigger. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that kind of sums it up you you just a very extreme version of your normal self i i guess that was that was my summary of it the first time around i think but you you went home your mum and dad had moved to a little island with a very small population in in scotland and you spent some time could you tell us a little bit about what what recovery looked like for you when you were getting better that first time it looked like a lot of sleeping and um, I used to get up. My mum used to get me up in the morning. And what used to get me out of bed, because I just didn't want to get up, was to watch Holby City. And that was on at 10 o'clock on UK Gold. But there was a rerun on UK Gold plus one at 11 o'clock. So I used to get up at 10 o'clock and watch Holby City or 11. And then it was just boring, you know. And I felt really low on myself. And yeah, I mean, they sort of couldn't have been in a better place, really, because I sort of just took off and tried to recover. But... It's interesting what I know now, like about my condition, but then you learn your condition just by being with yourself, don't you, for 38 years or whatever mm. old I am. And lots of the things that they tell you to do because you've got bipolar, I think they also tell people to, with diabetes to do as well. Right. And you think, well, that's just like, this is generic, just like good care of yourself. Yeah. So, you know, like avoid caffeine, you know sugars and all, all this stuff but then you start realizing that this is having an impact on you anyway sorry I'm, I'm fluctuating here i was drinking caffeine <laughs> because i was so tired you know i was having the coffee to try and be somewhere so i was heavily sedated i was on a drug called olanzapine that i was on for for seven years on this drug and it didn't agree with me looking back it made me very fat very thirsty and very lethargic very tired and i felt like i had a real zombies sort of 20s um because of that yeah, so that was my period there. I mean, I just I don't really don't remember much going for walks with my mum. And I mean, the island you say was very small, Colin says. So I think got like an eight mile track, single track that goes round it. And I was learning to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up putting a car in a ditch, both forward and yeah. in reverse. So those were two sort of highlights <laughs> for my recovery. Um, I'm trying to think of exciting bits. About <laughs> it. <laughs> But I wasn't, I mean, it was, I remember going away and like our tutor, Joe Bennett, saying, almost like trying to turn it, this is this is an interesting point, actually, like turn it into sort of like a positive. And this, this isn't being down on him, but like when you, I remember having this like meeting with him, I was, I was leaving uni, but then he's going to keep it open. I was going to take a year off and then come back and drop back a year, which mm-hmm. is what I did in the end. But I remember him saying, because my dad's in there, it's like, you know, you've got to go to this island, you can just like play loads of music and write loads of songs. Sounds brilliant, but the reality is when you're in that headspace, I didn't even pick up the guitar much really. It was just everything was just shite. And um, mm. there's like a theory now, like how people give like bad news, how it's changed, how it's evolved. I met this lady the other day, and back in the day, it's always about like giving the positives. Right. So you give someone like a feedback sandwich or whatever, you know, this is a good bit, and you tell them what's really going on, and end the, on a good bit, always looking for the positive. Yeah. And I think we're just past that, or it's just not in fashion at the moment, because I think that's what Joe Bennett was doing. This is a positive. This sure. is going to be your year of recovery. But the reality was that wasn't going to happen. It was going to be Holby City at 11 o'clock in the morning to get me up. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but it's great to the you. I mean, you called me, which is which is awesome. I remember you calling me. Well, I, one of my memories of of that period was a feeling of, and I reflect on this in case it's useful for for listeners who 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 are going through something similar, who maybe have friends who are experiencing difficult times of that nature. But I remember feeling I was sad for myself because my my best mate wasn't there uh wasn't wasn't next to me getting up to hijinks and things i was incredibly sad for you because you're missing out on things and because you weren't well but i also remember thinking that i didn't i didn't contact you enough i was quite frightened of contacting you because i didn't know and i I probably didn't couldn't have um couldn't have brought this into focus at the time but with the benefit of hindsight i think i was frightened because I'd seen you change, that my mate might not be there if I called, that you wouldn't quite be your old self and that I, I wouldn't know what to say. And it's nice that you remember me calling. And we did we did speak, um, but I, I think we could have spoken more. And I think if, if I could tell my younger self to do anything, I would say, don't be afraid, just make the call you know what's the worst that can happen you've already seen your, your friend unwell and they're only going to be a little bit better each time you speak to them although it may take some time uh, I wish that I'd spoken to you more in that time but don't beat yourself up because you are also 21 and living large and you know I know that you had stuff that you was going through um, and you were growing so you're not like a how old are you? 38 now? 37? 37 this year I was, yeah. yeah. Still a year younger than me. You're still growing. You did then, you know, so I don't think you Sure. Can... Yeah. Anyway, it's nice when you called. Well, that's, not, and, and that's, again, yeah, I suppose that's an important thing as well, isn't it? I suppose there's no, there's no really right or wrong way to deal with these things, but some things are, um, it's difficult. We all, we all struggle a bit with change when, when a, you know, when a situation that you're used to being there changes, that can be that can be really difficult. But you did get better. You were you had the the um, good fortune to have incredible parents who just seemed to get it and take you in and love you and be there with you. And um, I remember thinking that was one thing to be really grateful for that your mum and dad were just so brilliant and i remember being in touch with them a little through the process and um they they were just very warm about it never had a problem talking quite honestly about it as well i imagine it was much more difficult for them internally than they made out when we were conversing about it but they they were very good at sort of um letting me know how you were or what to expect when you were coming back and things like that uh, and I remember you coming back and I just remember you being very calm. You would have been still on some medication, I guess, at that time. Um, yeah, so it was the Lanzapine that was on for seven years. Right, of course, yes. Yeah. Of course. Uh, and and I, I think at the time I, I wouldn't have known exactly what medication you were on or how heavy it was, but I was aware of you being... You're more like your usual self, but you were more subdued. It took you some time to to get your sort of your your pace back, your your rhythm back. That and that that's something that I remember was was I really felt for you in that period. But you fought on and you you carried on and brought yourself back to health, didn't you? 
it's funny, isn't it? Because it's like the idea of being back to health. Like I'm, like at the moment, my, my speech is slightly slurred because of the medication that I'm on now. Right. I'm aware of that. I'm aware that I'm not as sharp as I, as I used to be. And I'm not kicking myself. I'm just, well, I know we're, I don't know if we tried to interview chronologically, but um, <laughs> so I'm, I know that I'm not. This the idea of like this like 100% health. I don't think it's ever really existed. Mm. I don't, know, I don't want to tell my story as this like big heroic story, like I went through all this and now oh, look how well I'm doing. Because I love my life and I've, I've made this great life for myself and I've got a wonderful wife and a beautiful daughter and I'm living in where I want to live and I'm doing this great job that I really love. And might not be there for a, a couple of months because it's all up in the air, but you know, that's, that's life, isn't it? I'm saying I've got a good place where I'm at. Absolutely, I'm yeah. At, yeah. But I don't want. The idea of this, like, um, 100% healthy, I don't know. I have been bruised a bit recently, if I'm being really honest. I sure. wanted to be genuine on, on the call with you. So, I mean, you know, it has been a good week, but last week wasn't very good, to be yeah. honest. Um, so, yeah. You know, that's, I'm really grateful for you sharing that, mate. And and I think that you raise an, an incredibly important point about this the, the myth of 100% health i think that there are there are still people e- even though the, the world now is slowly starting to open up to talking more about mental health and things like that uh, they were even talking about it on um, Mortimer and White House go fishing yesterday which was it was a short section at the end where it came up but it was brilliant they handled it really well i feel like i need to go back and, and watch the end of that there, there were some great statements there on their own mental health um, but there are, there's still a lot of people in the world who would rather not talk about it and who are to, to whom mental health doesn't exist. Put put that to one side. You you just get on with life and that's it. And and it is is isn't it isn't as simple as that. And I I know I've given a lot of thought lately to when I talk about I, I've sort of been telling a story of my own I, I guess which because I left my job at the start of this year I was I was offered redundancy and I took it because the alternative isn't something I wanted and I wanted to go off and do my own thing for a very long time um I have been pursuing as you know um writing a book and doing this podcast which I'm massively I'm absolutely passionate about it I I really love this I've recently rediscovered music in a way that I didn't think I was going to because I was feeling very very down and very bruised from the last couple of years my thing being mainly stress and and depression and a bit of anxiety and I've been sort of telling this story because my average mood is much higher than it was over the last few years I was very very stressed I've been talking uh, a lot about feeling great I left my job and it was the best thing that I ever did and therefore I must be absolutely brilliant I'm I'm obviously bouncing off the walls happy that I don't have that job you know the 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 same people to report to and and things like that every day and the reality is that's just not true and i worry sometimes that i probably give off a bit of a, a a false idea what i'm trying to say is that i know that the decisions that i've made and that the place that i'm in is the right place and that i in the long term will be better for it but actually to say that just making a change in your life suddenly equates to everything is fixed it's not as simple as that is it life is a lot more complex than that and i think the one thing that when when you're diagnosed with a, a mental health 
condition. Frankly, I think we all have mental health conditions. It's just a case of whether some doctor writes it down somewhere and says it out loud that makes a difference between, you know, those who identify as that or not. Um, Did say Jesus. Yeah, we'll come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) uh... Once you become uh, aware or, or, or accepting of the fact that you've been diagnosed with something you then tend to become more introspective about it and can dwell on it and that it almost can compound the issue because on the one hand you you now maybe have control over it but on the other hand it's something that you worry about whereas previously perhaps you wouldn't have done it do you think there's any truth in that or do you would you disagree that's really interesting that's really interesting because i got this diagnosis of bipolar when i was 21 and as you rightly said my parents are fabulous um just one left now yeah. but uh they really didn't believe i was bipolar and even when i had the second episode and even though i went back on the medication and all that well mum used to sometimes say like oh you know i just think you're eccentric and that sort of thing and i didn't have an episode between 25 and 38 and I've actually gone off medication because I was, when I was trying for a baby with Polly, mm-hmm. that's when I came off my medication and then just kept off Depakote. So I was off medication for, what, five years? So I've been medication-free as well for five years. So no episode for 30 mm. years, no medication for five years. People, my closest people to me saying, you're probably not bipolar. And then I had this hell of a Jesus bipolar episode in February and my dad passed away and he came up and totally looked after me told me you're incredible you know yeah. and yeah. as you saw it firsthand I was freaking off the wall you know proper severed from reality and I'm really happy to share stuff that happened not just anecdotal sort of funny mental health war stories even though they are quite funny because when you talk about them now you know, like, <laughs> trying to think what, what do I think was happening Anyway, there's, there's loads of funny stuff that I'm sure will come up in conversation, but it was a, a, a severed from reality, yeah. off your head sort of thing. Yeah. And at the end of that, I was like, I'm definitely bipolar. Yeah. And that sounds yeah. really silly to say that. And, and I also thought, and I'm going to tell people. I'm going to tell people at work. And I'm at the age now that, you know, if people say, oh, that you won't get a, it could affect your job career. So I don't want to work anywhere if it's not going to accept me for being bipolar. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I prefer to work in a really low wage job, whether okay me being bipolar. That's not going to happen anyway, but that is one of the fears that people have said. I mean, I remember back in the day, my mum sort of saying, you know, be careful who you tell about it because of that mm-hmm. stigma that's out there. And it just felt since then, it's like, I am bipolar. I'm going to own this now. And then, as I said before, this, the um, looking after yourself being bipolar and being diabetic have been quite similar in places and you think this is ridiculous you know so it's like a insulin condition on one's uh, mind thing but the the idea of like you've got this thing that you are is is really liberating i find because there's still lots of different people that are bipolar so i'm not at all like Jimi hendrix i'm not and i'm not Jimi hendrix or like Jimi hendrix very important um or robbie williams or whoever else is but if you're in that bracket, you've got this thing, there's always this research in the Bipolar Scotland who I interviewed on my show. They've got this brilliant like toolkit for people with bipolar and people that are helping people with bipolar. And it's just, it's really written down really, really well, in you know, a simple sort of terms that you've got this condition and there's things that you can do. And then if you want to do it or, or not, it's up to you and you can fight against it. And 
you make your own decisions in the end, you know? So, mm. like, I'm not drinking. I haven't drank for a couple of months. But when I came out of my episode, um, I had a conversation, like, with the doctor, and I knew I was going to be on medication for a long time now, and definitely for the next year, at least on this stuff I'm on now, which is making me slower and slower, but keeping me sane. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to be on it long term. Can I drink on this? You know, I need to know if I can drink. And I, you know, he said, yeah, obviously, he said you can, you know, but be sensible about it. Da, 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 da. And I was really sort of quizzing myself. It's like, do I want to drink? And I was like, no, but I want to know that I can if I want to. Sure. It's more like I'm not going to be uh, parented by these, this, like, my, my disease or these people telling me what to do. And, um, but then you realize that, well, it's probably better not to drink. <laughs> but I had to come there by myself, you know. So I think that, so if we go back to your original question about it being, um, is it a something you can dwell in having your condition or can it be a liberating thing? Did you say it like that or frame it like that? Yeah. So what I'm sort of saying is I, at, at 38, having been through it a bit, see it as a liberating thing now but looking back on my life i've fought against it because i've still been growing and i've seen it as a um as a controlling thing or something to kick against that's an amazing way of looking at it and and again thank you for for sharing so openly and honestly with that that's um yeah you you speaking as your mate and as someone who's sort of looked at it from the sidelines there's i i could easily see and I'm sure that people, some people listening to this will, will identify with this if they've ever been in contact with, with someone who's struggling with, uh, with, with mental health I- issues. How easy it would be if you didn't have the, um, I don't know what it would be, the, the confidence, the strength of character to make your own decision to get yourself there. It would be very easy for someone to slip into despair. And I'm sure that you probably have times of despair. And you said when we've spoken in the last few months, you've had low moments and things like that. But you have made the decision to say, OK, let's be honest with myself. This is the situation. Therefore, these are the things I need I need to do to get better. And I remember even during your last the, the last time that you were very poorly and I was there staying with you even in those even during that time there were moments where uh, as you say you did completely split with reality for for part of that episode there were moments where my mate Blair came through and was was asking amazing questions about what do I need to do to get better it was clear that you, you know your will was there and I think that you're very fortunate that you have that or that may may not always feel like that um but you you use that to such a great effect and that is you know cut forward let you are you know you you and polly um are doing fantastic and um you know you've got your beautiful daughter chamomile um and you know you're, you're holding things together and you're doing great i don't think anyone listening to this would be aware that you you mentioned about slurring your language and and being slower than than normal I don't think other people would notice that and in fact I don't notice it until you point it out and then then because I've known you for a long time it's it's suddenly a little more obvious but you you're doing a great job if we could um wrap this up now no <laughs> no no no, no. I, I just wanted you 
way you, of going. You mentioned <laughs> Jimi Hendrix a minute ago. I, I would wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing a little more of uh, what, where did Jimi Hendrix come into all this, please, mate? <laughs> so this is one of the funny um, mental health war stories, isn't it, from being a mad person. So the first time I had this, the first episode when I was at university studying music with, with Tom and um, I was passed from different doctors to doctors that were trying to diagnose me and find out what was wrong with me and what was going to put me on and all these different things. And there was just an incident when I walked into a, where my parents lived at the time, which was in Scotland. It was actually Birmingham before they moved. And uh, went into this doctor's surgery. It was a family doctor. I had known for a while from him. And uh, what I'd said to a previous doctor had been, I was extremely good at guitar because I was really hyper at the time. And you when you're in this state of hypermania as a bipolar person, you think you can do anything, so you exaggerate a lot. And I told this previous doctor that I could play as well as Jimi Hendrix. And then when I went into this other doctor's surgery with my dad, I sat down and the family doctor was there. And so she went, right, so you're Jimi Hendrix. I, like, no, I never said that. <laughs> brilliant i'm glad that you were able to chuckle about that quite so quickly afterwards and i think a good sense of humor definitely does get you through these things doesn't it still do mad things though i was thinking about this recently i've, I've had a real desire to spend a lot of money and it's interesting that you you mentioned about that mm -hmm. in my um, mental state because we went into ouster didn't we when we had a halloween party and i spent 200 quid on halloween decorations which is a lot of money when we were students and we didn't really have the money it's a lot of money. Well, now. it is a lot of money now, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's really interesting you pointed that out because um, that is part of my condition, you know. And uh, I just felt this real need to sort of spend money at the moment. I haven't done, but I keep looking at these guitars and things and like emailing them and just getting more details. I think, what's going on? And then yesterday with Holly, I did buy a stand up paddleboard and we are going to go paddleboarding. I think right. it's, it is a both of us but mm -hmm. it's 300 quid and i did it and i thought right i've done it and i thought i've just been desperate to do that probably for like about a month and right. it's not something i really should be doing because the job and furlough and you know removing house and should be sensible and saving but i really felt a need to spend a chunk of money and i've done it now i've really hope i've done I've, i have done it now and it's a great thing that Polly and I are going to share. We're going to go paddleboarding every week when Grandma's at nursery on a Thursday. Makes sense. Lovely, yeah. And up until that, this desire, I was looking at guitars, I was looking at new PlayStations and stuff like that, and I don't even play PlayStations anymore. Mm. And it's just um, it's good to be aware of yourself, isn't it, and your individual triggers and things. Absolutely. I, I think I would say to that point as well, though, um, I would also say don't beat yourself up too much about that need to spend because although it may happen to be something that's manifested itself as, as perhaps one of your symptoms when you've been unwell i was watching a brilliant brilliant documentary last night on netflix called the social dilemma everyone oh, needs to watch it. It, it, it it's absolutely fantastic but one of the things that that i really identify with it is the fact that because it's not just social media, but ev everything that you, from your emails to to just Google, the Google page that you go to, when you start typing into the search bar, your 
phone and your computer know you so well by your past purchases or past searches and things like that that they're going to show you more and more and more of the things that they know that you like and whether that is done purely to monetize things or purely to satisfy you as a user is kind of that's a moot point the point is that we are constantly fed more temptation in one direction or another constantly 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 and i doubt that you are you you have actually identified that need to spend but i doubt that you're alone in that and i think a lot of people who don't have diagnosed conditions probably i i fight that a lot of the time i i think i spend a lot of time window shopping on ebay thankfully I developed some restraint, not as much as I probably ought to over the years, but there is a definite urge there to do that. And I wonder if some of that is to do with what we're fed by the technology we use. So don't be too hard on yourself about that. But it's good. I guess it's no bad thing to be cognizant of that, though, as you go yeah, through every day. Just aware of it, isn't it? You start, you know, why am I doing these things? Mm. Yeah. We want to just tap in one last time for the sake of, of people who might not be familiar with these things, I want to go one last time into uh, some of the more negative bits and then I just want to talk a bit about where you are now and the, the fantastic life that you've got ahead of you. But your your last episode at the start of this year where you, we've mentioned that you are detached from, from reality, do you mind telling us a little bit more about what what you mean by that? In what way do, were you detached from reality? Yeah, so I go back to the source of it, because it gives context to the story, really. I was in quite a stressed situation, home life, mother-in-law was living with Polly and I. Uh, it was before lockdown, and it was just hard. Everything was a bit hard. And Polly and I came back from Paris, a little weekend away, and got the news that my dad had died. Mm. My dad's 86, uh, but it's still a bit surprised he seemed all right, isn't it? <laughs> um, and just that snowball effect so you know that day i traveled up and you know went to see my dad in the borg and brother came up with angela and drank loads of wine and <clears throat> yeah so isn't blaming anybody but just from that sort of crazy experience i ended up drinking shit loads mm-hmm. and you know with the i think the, the build-up of the stress beforehand the big life events of my dad dying you know it was unavoidable so I just got myself in the right state and really um, convinced myself that my wife was the enemy. <laughs> you know, we we were over and she was, you know, to be gone. And the time I got back home after what I'd been away like a, five days, maybe no a week, because I was in Bristol for a bit, staying with some friends. Um, Polly had to call an ambulance because I was going crazy in the middle of the night and got taken in, taken into Torbay Hospital and assessed. And they released me in the middle of the night, mm. uh, which Polly's really angry about because I wasn't really wasn't well. But then I was booked in to see a psychiatrist on the Monday, and then just got got onto a very very um, heavy cocktail of drugs. And my dad hadn't had the funeral yet, so I was trying to work towards uh, getting myself well enough to go to his funeral. But I was really hyper. I was really at the top end of my you know hypermanic bit of me. And there was a crisis team coming around and I just really want to get myself well. And I was asking, you know, what can I do more to get myself well? And you'd come down as well, I think, during that time. It's all a massive blur because yeah. Adam came down as well and a great friend. And obviously Cara came down. 
your beautiful wife and it was uh, I didn't make my dad's funeral basically what happened because I was unwell yeah but lead, leading up to that time and yeah I was acutely unwell for two weeks I think I've recorded that and then I've been on recovery since and then three months after that I was a bit of a zombie around the house and not involved in chamomile but in the last three months it's only been six months I've been looking after chamomile and back in the game and Polly and I are better than ever we've been seeing a marriage counsellor it's been incredible it's been so good we're better than we were before really recommend it to anybody that's to amazing it's almost like getting an MOT for your car you know you don't have to have a broken car to get it serviced or MOT you know it's just such a good thing to do because we were good before but we're even better now yeah um, but I was acutely unwell for two weeks so your question was what was that like um terrifying yeah I mean there's, there's funny bits like if I I've written about the um the incident when I went to Torbay Hospital, everything that happened there, and like being in the waiting room and you know just getting in everyone's face and talking to people with tattooed necks that were terrifying, covered in blood, and getting them to play a game. It was just a meeting crazy mental health nurses that you know one was winding me up. But these things happened. So even though it was a break from reality, I met some crazy people and really went to some crazy places because you attract it. So you you know it's like energy, isn't it? What you put out, you get back. So. Yeah. I was off my head and I was having these experiences. Um, but really, really scaring Polly and she had to move out with um, the mother-in-law and my daughter. And what's really sad is that looking back the whole time, I really didn't have chamomile in my head, which is just horrendous. But that's why I know I was so unwell. Because um, I'm saying, you know, adore my daughter. I'm all about, I'm all about her. You know, she's the chops. You know, mm. she's, she's my daughter. She's your goddaughter. Tom. She is indeed. So, I mean, that just that whole time of shit. Um, and I never want to get back there again. And I will slur my words to my dying day. That's what it has to be. Um, because I think now what's different with being me <laughs> is it's not just uh, me anymore. It's the family, um, wife and daughter. And so it's just my mom now. And you just want to be well for yourself, but for people around you. I don't put anybody through that, that stuff anymore. It's horrible when I put people through and I put you through as well and I, I, I know I was pretty horrendous to you at times well you, you were I think what's important to say about that that period was that you were clearly and this is something that that it's I think when you're going through if you're experiencing something like that with someone who's who's having an episode of some sort you must remind yourself that this person is not in their right mind literally speaking it's an old-fashioned phrase but you weren't yourself at the time you, you quite simply weren't yourself you were um Possessed. well you yeah i mean that's that's how it came across you were delusional so you were saying things that didn't make sense by way of illustrating that talking you you would come out of the bathroom and tell me that you just had a conversation with who's the guy i can't remember from tron yeah, Jeff Bridges. Uh, yeah, we talked about this. But, I do not remember this. No, well, you, no, we we talked about this when we when we were on the phone last. But I just just wanted to I just wanted to uh, illustrate the point that when someone is not well, they are unwell, and it's a very different person that you're dealing with to the 
to that friend so? that you know. That's sorry right. to interrupt, but only because it's stuff like this, because, you know, I, I talk about it's like flashbacks, like people say things, I'm like, oh, I feel awful because I can remember stuff. Yeah. But I really don't remember talking to Jeff Bridges. And just going back to that original chat about the Jimi Hendrix thing, when I said, yeah. I, can Jimi Hendrix. I am Jimi Hendrix, you know, it's a very distinct difference. What exactly did they say about Jeff Bridges? I'm really intrigued. You came out of the bathroom, so you were keeping extremely clean that week. Because you, your sleeping pattern, a major symptom was your sleeping pattern was hugely disrupted. So you would only sleep for a few hours at a time, um, so sometimes not even hours at a time. But each time you got up, you were ready to face a new day. So I just remember there was lots of you going and getting showered and ready for the morning. But it might be one in the morning at that point or something like that. Uh, and you came out of the bathroom at one point and you just said, I've just been speaking with Jeff Bridges in there. He said, everything's going to be okay. And that was all you said. Of, that was all you said about it. And then you put your arm around me and you gave me a squeeze. And I took it to be a positive thing at the time. And those are the sorts of things that serve as a reminder that you, you really weren't yourself. And that's what, what I'm trying to say is that and you you very specifically but anyone who's, who's going who has been through something like that you mustn't beat yourself up because it's not something that you have chosen it's not something that you know when you, you apologize to whenever we talk about it there's a you, you're always very good at speaking openly about it but I can see that it pains you to have to think about it and you don't need to feel uh, bad in, in any way because it's clearly you know it's not not something that you were going through that you would have chosen or that you were going through deliberately. Um, and you have come through that and cut to now. You, uh, we're in a global pandemic, which is a bit challenging for us all. You've got well, some... Well, for me, in a really messed up way, this is probably going to, you know, you probably get loads of emails about this, but um, the pandemic's been horrendous, I guess, given people have died terrible. But for me, with the timings of having a complete psychotic break, and being out of it for three months those first three months I was just gone and it felt like the whole world had gone and I was I could sort of you know, have to explain myself to work and stuff mm. I mean I didn't tell them what happened but it was it was a really weird time because it felt like everything had just gone mm. myself included and the world yeah sorry no no don't don't apologize I think that that's I think that's because I felt that it came at if there is such a thing, and I'm not referring to the illness that's attached to the, the well, the the illness that is the pandemic, but the idea of lockdown and taking a break from normal life, I think has actually in some ways been helpful for quite a lot of people. Although I think by now we're all starting to feel a bit, well, or, or maybe we're well beyond tired of it. But, you know, I, I think there are positives to be taken from taking a break from what was our reality. So that's not such a bad thing. But you are, like you say, you are, you and Polly are being strong. You, you're going through, you mentioned a moment ago about therapy and you reminded me of a friend of ours who was on one of um, our previous podcasts, who's also been on your brilliant podcast. If anyone hasn't tuned into Blair's Blues and Other News before, um, and and your most recent, now. yeah, your most recent podcast, Music That Survived By, where you... Um, what did you refer to it as desert discs of the mind where you in interview people and you ask about this uh, uh, tunes that have uh, gone through their lives with them and, and you've got a very um, 
big leaning towards talking about mental health with the people that you interview on there. It's a brilliant, brilliant show. Huge well done for that and to your, your original show, which was just massively enjoyable for musicians like, like me. Um, but you and I both interviewed a chap called Ben Akers, who um, you actually introduced me to when I was going through a tough time at the start of the year. You invited me and Adam, who you mentioned before, um, who's a lovely fella, um, to go and watch a documentary that uh, that Ben had made. And it was a bit of a game changer for all of us, I think, in terms of opening up, talking about mental health. He's done us some great favours. But when we had him on the show, he said something to me that really resonated. And it, it's it's I think I'll never, ever forget this. He said, I'm good at my job because I'm in therapy. And he was talking about how um, he is unashamed of going to therapy, talking about it, telling other people, go, go and get some treatment, look after yourself. Uh, because like you, like you mentioned about an MOT, whether we're talking about in terms of a relationship or whether we're talking about looking after yourself, your brain is the thing that is on the go all the time. Your, your brain, your relationships, these are things that, that are the pillars of your existence, aren't they? And the idea that we are a little bashful about seeking help with those things sounds like the most crazy thing that that you know that, that we could have mentioned on this podcast because you take your car to the garage at least once a year to get it looked at um if you're a sports person you you see a physio and you know you have training for it and and things like that and yet we don't really do those things so I know you you are someone you've taught me a huge amount over the course of our friendship about taking ownership of your own stuff, uh, your own problems, and identifying them so that you can work through them, and that's been that's been a big um, a, a big thing for me, massively important. Um, so I'm really grateful to you for for being a bit of a shining light on that and what you do on your show, talking so openly and and inviting other people to to speak to openly on the topic of mental health. I just think is is absolutely brilliant. Um, so thank you for that. Um, you also mentioned, and and it would be just completely wrong not to to mention it, but you also mentioned earlier on the passing of your dad, Ken, and he I mentioned it briefly before. Your mum and dad are wonderful, wonderful people. Your dad is an incredibly strong character, funny. Outgo. He had a, always had a calm confidence. He'd lived. He was a man who seemed to have lived a lot of lives and had lots of stories to tell. And I know that his passing was incredibly hard for you. It was very sad for anyone that knew him. It's not surprising that you went through what you did after he passed. And I think that grief is something that we intend to look at on a, on a future episode. Perhaps. Perhaps you'll come and talk to, to us at that point, maybe if you feel up to it. But um, grief is such a major thing that we don't really talk about. We don't really, no one really knows what the rules are around grief, how you're supposed to do it, what form it's going to come in. Um, and, and that's really massive for us as, as well. So I think when, when you add up all the things that you're going through in your life at the time, changes in your job, changes in where you lived, who you lived with, all sorts of things adding up and obviously losing your, your wonderful dad at the same time. 
um, it's not surprising that you went through something. And I think that it's that people should arm themselves to be ready for crises like that because we all go through stuff. You know, there's no getting away from death and big changes and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm not, not entirely sure where I was going with that. It just seemed something important to call out. No, I think it's I think it's a case that you don't have to do it alone, isn't it? I think that's a big sort of takeaway, isn't it? Is that yeah. all these things you got you have got friends, you know, and to speak to them and to be a friend, you know. I've really wanted to be a friend for you and it's really nice hearing you say nice things because I feel like you've been such a fantastic friend for me. Um, mm-hmm. it's just nice you said that. I mean I think Yeah, because I remember when your lovely mum passed away, um a lovely lady I think just and to talk about them such a great thing isn't it because yeah you, you're keeping them keeping them alive and you are in, in what you do I mean, she lived through you didn't she and your sisters and your, your nephews and your nieces i mean that's that's like you have like these circles of influence don't you and then that's what you leave behind isn't it yeah so even like how you just talking about my dad then you know and i know your dad has a little thing for my dad didn't he it's like you they, they got on well didn't they oh. it's just how it it's nice. That's what you leave, and then then you, and then it's that. It feels like it's a change of the guard at the moment. But perhaps everyone feels like this when they lose a parent, because you all sort of, everyone gets bumped up. I mean, it felt like when Camel was born, it was like, oh God, I'm a dad now, and then he's a granddad. I know he was a granddad before, but then it's like a shift of relationships, and then my dad died, and it's like, oh God, so I'm at the top of this sort of tree now. Mm. And I remember my boss said that to me actually. It was like, well, you're the daddy now. Not like in a Ray Winston scum sort of way, but um, <laughs> it's and it's quite it's quite frightening. And it, I don't know, I don't know if it's just me being a bit sensitive because the stuff have gone on, or it is because it's a funny time with what's happening in the world. And it just feels like so much change. But perhaps it always has been. But the big change for me is that my, my dad's passed. You know, and I used to speak to him weekly, and he was such a sage, and he had such an interesting view. He was very biased. He was right, you know, pretty right wing. <laughs> and all that but he he had his own viewpoint and his own life lived and seen so much you know, born in 1933 to see all those changes um and now i'm thinking we're living in this time it, it, so many things happened since he died this year we should just he would just be livid <laughs> but then perhaps that's just like um uh that's just how it is um, that's just the world i suppose yeah, I don't know what I'm trying to say now. No, it's a difficult one, and we're trying to find... I think the, the answer is that there are no answers, really, to this stuff, but it's good to, to call out the fact that life is complicated and life is tough. Um, and these are all the reasons why we need to be able to talk to each other about stuff like this. So I think I just want to end the, the show by pointing out to, to you um, that you are... And this is not just for the benefit of the tape, um, but in in spite of the challenges that you've been through that we've talked about on the show today and the the reasons that that I asked you to to come on the show, you you remain one of the strongest and wisest friends people in my life and are constantly a rock for me and that's really important to acknowledge that not just because I want to make you uh, I you know I would love to, to cheer you up if you need cheering up but that's not the reason I say it the reason that I say it is that you can have 
problems in your life, it doesn't take away from the character that you are. And I think you're a shining example of that. Uh, so anyone who's listening to this who might be um, battling with whatever it may be, frankly, your, your problems are real, whatever they are, they're very personal to you, but it could be a bipolar condition, it could be depression, it could be stress, it could be grief, whatever it is, whatever you're suffering with, it doesn't take away your personality, it doesn't change who you are. And I can say that because my best mate's gone through some pretty weird and challenging shit and still manages to be the person that I will turn to if I really need help with something. So there it is. Oh, that's, that's great to hear. That's lovely. Yeah, always here, always here for you, mate. Oh, I mean, when I was at Mental when you came up, <laughs> I was thinking, oh, yeah, this is my time to uh, help Tom. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you saying that. Do you know, I, yeah. I, remember, I remember arriving at your house and the first thing you did when we came in, you said, right, so you're having a tough time at the moment, are you? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's that's lovely because you were very not not well at the time. And you were it's funny how the, the where you were at at the time, certain parts of your character were dialed right up your confidence, your aggression um, some of those other bits, some of your more sensitive, mellow sides are dialed right down. So it was almost like someone had taken the mixing desk that is you and just messed up all the levels and turned some things up to 11 and some things down to zero or, or you know. And yet through all of that, you the thing that cut through us when I saw you was you were worried about me. And I, we laugh about that now, but I've always seen that as, as a really beautiful so thanks for that mate well thank you for listening to this episode of the everyday problems podcast i'd like to say a huge thank you to blair for coming on the show and being so open and honest i should also take this opportunity to say a shout out to the crisis teams around the country and medical health professionals who help people like blair and myself with mental health challenges day in day out we salute you if you're in a place where you feel you need a little bit of help or just need to reach out and speak to someone or if you know someone else who's in a similar state, then make sure you're having that conversation. You can reach out and speak to friends or family or a therapist or counsellor or perhaps even a life coach. We'll put some useful links up in the show notes. Once again, thank you so much to all of our listeners and supporters. And if you would like to help us keep the lights on for the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Tom Corneal and donate a tiny amount each month, which helps us cover subscription fees and the amount of time and effort it takes to cover these shows. We're hugely grateful for every little donation that we get. You guys, listeners, supporters, you make all of this possible. If you're finding this podcast useful, then please remember to subscribe so that you don't miss the next show. And also give us a rating if you'd like to. It's really helpful for us. We're so grateful for every bit of support that we get in whatever form we may receive it. Take care, folks.